0: Remain standing, if you will, and turn in your Bibles to Genesis 3, verses 14 to 19. And I'm going to take this liberty, Melinda, to say that I don't know if that was a repeat or not during the offertory, but put that on the repeat list. That was beautiful. And thank you to all the musicians. That was really incredible. Thank you. Genesis 3, 14. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Let's pray together. Father, we do pray as we come to your word now that you would instruct our hearts and that by your spirit you would illumine us, our hearts, our minds, to see and understand and gain further clarity what your will is for our lives. Give us the attention that we need, Lord, that we would not be distracted by unnecessary things. And empower me to preach according to your will, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. We continue to work our way through the book of Genesis. For those who may be visiting today, we're, that's what we're doing. That's why we're at this text. Otherwise, you may wonder, why did he pick this text? Uh, this is, doesn't sound... Well, it's not very happy. You know, it's kind of uh, well, it's full of judgment, curses. And then you might notice in the bulletin that the title of the sermon is "Grace in the Garden." What in the world was he thinking when he picked that title? Well, hopefully you saw some of the grace in Genesis 3:15, and we talk about that uh, quite a bit uh, in our circles, this first announcement of the gospel. Uh, But there's more to the story than just that, more grace than is found just in verse 15. In fact, grace has been there all along, hasn't it? Since the first verse of Genesis, we have seen how God has graciously worked according to his love and giving us unmerited favor. We only have to see it. Yeah, the creation has been changed forever. It's been altered because of the fall. There's now going to be pain, both physically and emotionally. There's now going to be suffering. Work is going to be hard. Even surviving, eating, God said, would be by the sweat of our brow. And ultimately, where will we all end up? In the dust. We're all going to die. But it is through these things that we also see deliverance. It's through death that we enter into resurrected life. Um, very few have gotten exception to that. We all go through the door of death into the resurrection for those who trust Christ. Eating through toil will one day be replaced with feasting. That is not through toil at the wedding feast of the Lamb. Now, eating is something that we all can identify with because it's all necessary to life, but there are some of us more than others that may enjoy eating, Uh, Eating is certainly easier now that we don't live in an agrarian type of world. We still understand that we work according to the sweat of our brow. Nobody just puts everything in front of us. There's labor that goes into it, even if it's to pay someone else to put it in front of us. Work that faces resistance now will be changed in the new heavens and the new earth, something that I find difficult to understand what that's going to look like that work was established before the curse. Work is not a result of the fall. Work was something that God gave Adam and Eve to do, and so work will be present in the new heavens and the earth, but it will be fulfilling and joyful in ways that we can't understand. And although there is still pain in childbirth, it was through childbirth that the Savior would come, Emmanuel, God with us, to save us from our sin. And so even through a passage that contains both curses and judgment, we see the grace of God. That in this moment where Adam and Eve, having just sinned and sinned gravely, doing the one thing that God had commanded them not to do, God holds out hope to them. And I hope that that's what we see today. Look with me, if you will, in verse 14, and we notice that to the serpent... God doesn't ask any questions. Like we saw last week with Adam and Eve, we saw God ask them a series of questions to lead them to an understanding of the heart of the matter. He doesn't do that for Satan, does he? For the serpent, he uh, goes right to the curse, right to the announcement of judgment. First, I want to distinguish though, what is the difference between a judgment and a curse? And without knowing exactly what the original author's intent was, I'm going to make this distinguishing for our understanding today. Because we do notice that a curse is given against the serpent, and a curse is given against the ground. But a curse is not given against Adam and against Eve. And so, because that's true, I want to distinguish between those two words so that we understand it a little bit better. There's some nuance here. While man and woman would all feel, including us, the dependent, or the, uh, the uh, descendants, rather, uh, of Adam and Eve, we've all felt the effects of the fall, including the effects of the curse. Uh, our, you know, we, we all die. We've talked about the, the, you know, we'll face suffering and sickness and so forth. Everything has been affected. We ourselves are not under that curse. There is still hope. I should say it differently. I should say we are still, we're under the curse, but we're not cursed. Do you understand the difference that I'm making there? Let me explain it a little bit further. If you look uh, at, at uh, if you, or if you think about the idea of curse and judgment, a judgment is a righteous act for something that's been done with hope held out. A judgment is, is a righteous act against, you know, for something that's been done. It's a righteous reaction. A curse is a righteous reaction, but there's no hope. And we see that, don't we? For Satan, how did Paul close uh, his, his letter to Romans? He said, and God, the God of peace, will soon crush Satan underneath your feet. Right? Satan has no hope. Even as we speak of the earth, the ground that was cursed, we know that the earth and the heavens will be destroyed. There will be a new heavens in a new earth, Peter spoke of this in 2 Peter 3.7, uh, but by the same word, the heavens and the earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. And so there is a difference then that I'm drawing between a judgment and a curse. And so Adam and Eve experience judgment while Satan and the earth experience a curse. The difference, we could say it another way, is simply the gospel the hope of the gospel. The hope of the gospel is there for Adam and is there for Eve. The serpent who was controlled by Satan receives a curse. Both the animal is cursed and Satan is cursed. We'll see this as we work our way through. The serpent, it says, is cursed above all livestock and beasts of the field. So we know here the text is speaking of the animal. The animal is cursed. Now we know that the entire animal kingdom has been affected by the curse because animals die. And we see animals that are afflicted with sicknesses and so forth. So the entire animal kingdom has been affected, but the serpent receives a unique judgment. One, he shall forever crawl on his belly, it says. Some believe that the serpent's anatomy changed here, that it was possible the serpent had feet, had legs, had arms, some something. maybe he even walked upright, um, the text doesn't say this definitively, but there's room for that position. It's possible. It's also possible that it, the text means that he'll continue to crawl on his belly. That's how he was created. But now there's a new significance. Now there is the shame and the humility that is pointed out in how he lives his life. He shall eat among the dust and the dirt of the ground. The, the picture here is one of judgment and humility. Humility. And we see this, for example, in a number of Old Testament passages that speak of defeat of enemies. It talks about they will eat the dust or lie in the dust. It's a picture of judgment. And even though it has a different connotation, even in our own language, we have something that we say like this, right? Eat my dust. What does that mean? I'm going to beat you, right? I'm going to defeat you. You're going to be left behind. There will be enmity between the serpent and mankind, I don't think there is any question that there is enmity between snakes and people. Yes, there are some people who do like snakes. They typically are few and far between. Many of us think the only good snake is a dead one. Um, Although I try really, really hard not to (laughs) act on that thought. I don't like snakes. You guys know that. But you may wonder, why is this just? The snake is not a moral creature. The snake didn't choose, didn't go in to collaborate with with Satan on this. Satan used the snake. Well, the judgment is tied to the creation order. Man and woman are created in the image of God. The serpent, even though it was used by Satan, served in their destruction. Therefore, because of God's image... The serpent has to be judged. You consider the law that was given in Exodus that talked about an animal that killed a person. What was to happen to that animal? We read about it in Exodus 21. When an ox gores a man or a woman to death, the ox shall be stoned. Is it because they saw the ox as bad or immoral? No, it was because man and woman are created in the image of God that the ox must be stoned. It's all about the glory of God. The animal kingdom was created to serve humans and to be ruled by humans. And so, because Satan used the serpent to usurp that, the serpent was placed under a curse. And we're reminded of that every time we see a snake. Because most of us do what? We jump, don't we? We're startled by it. Um, We're reminded seeing that they crawl in the dust, we're reminded that they're sneaky. Right, They don't let their presence be known. It's one of the reasons why I think that the anatomy didn't change because it said that the snake was the craftiest of all. And one of the reasons snakes are crafty is because they don't have feet and legs. And they can move through dead leaves and so forth often without making any sound. I don't know. We'll find that out on the other side. But either way, the point is the snake was cursed. But the curse applies to Satan. And the curse that applies to Satan as well is much more significant. In fact, the curse against Satan causes the curse against the serpent to pale in comparison. The enmity or division, the animosity that would be between the woman and Satan and between the offspring of both uh, needs to be unpacked a little bit. There's movement of thought here between these words that we see in verse 15. First, we're talking about two individuals. The enmity that exists between them. And then we talk about their descendants. So we're talking about a lot of people. We're talking plural. There's a movement of thought that's expanding. Now, we understand who the descendants of the woman are, who those descendants are. It's us, right? But who are the descendants of Satan? Well, here we get... uh, First, you understand this passage is prophecy, right? We don't often think of this as prophecy, but it is. Who's the prophet? God. It's one of the unique passages in Scripture where God is actually the prophet, where he is, rather than using an intermediary, he is announcing what is happening. And so what happens a lot of times in prophecy is there's a literal, upfront, immediate meaning of that prophecy, but then there's often something further off. And the thing that's further off is often deeper, more significant, and is spiritual, and that's what we see happening here. The descendants of Satan are explained to us in Jesus' own words in John 8, 44, where he said, You are of your father, the devil, and you will do, your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning, and he does not stand in the truth because there's no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. The descendants of the serpent, of Satan, are those who do not believe and obey the word of God. In other words, there is more to this curse than being afraid of snakes. I would say there's much more to this curse than being afraid of snakes. The the fear of snakes is the least of our concerns. The much greater concern is, do we trust Christ? So here in verse 15, the stage of redemptive history is being set. There are those who hear and trust and obey, and there are those who reject God's words and disobey, following the lies of Satan. But there's even more to verse 15. The movement of thought then goes from singular woman and snake, woman and serpent, woman and Satan, to descendants, plural, a lot of people, including all of us, and then back to the singular, one descendant. He, he shall crush your head, and you shall strike his heel, is in the singular. We're talking about one person. Again, God's speaking prophetically, and he he is saying here that there is a descendant of Eve who would come and destroy the serpent, who would destroy Satan. What we call the proto-euangelion, or the first announcement of the gospel. This is a beautiful thing, because right here in the very beginning, in a moment of great sin and shame, God is announcing the good news of Jesus. It's here in verse 15 of chapter 3 of Genesis that the stage is set so that the rest of Scripture is the unfolding of the fulfillment of this promise right here. That there is one who would come who would crush the head of the serpent. It is the first whisper of hope that God would save His people from their sins. That they would not be judged forever, but a Savior would come and crush Satan in defeat. You might not be surprised to know that Genesis 3.15 is probably my favorite verse in Genesis. And this is why. Because it sets for us what the Bible is all about. Does the Bible have wisdom for our lives? Absolutely. Does the Bible have incredible stories? Sure. Does the Bible give us instruction for how we're to live? Yes. But the Bible is not primarily any of those things. The Bible is primarily the unfolding story of redemption accomplished in Jesus Christ. Everything in the Bible points to Jesus. And it's the reason that every sermon I ever preach comes back to Jesus, even when we're in Genesis. This is the point of Scripture, the unfolding of this verse right here. Salvation is coming. The grace of God is going to break through, no matter how badly they had sinned and disobeying only one commandment that he had given them not to do. Yes, it was going to require suffering. Suffering, great suffering. Satan would crush or strike the heel of Jesus. What is that speaking of? Jesus would suffer and die. And Satan, being a deceiver, deceives himself. A lot of times when we think of deception, we think of deceiving other people. But unfortunately, when we are deceptive... The worst deception is often the deception against ourselves. We become delusional, and Satan is the worst at this. He was so delusional that he thought the cross was a victory for him. But the promised one, born of a woman, through childbirth, would suffer and die and rise again, conquering sin and death, crushing The head of the serpent. So, right from the beginning, we could even say before the beginning, the gracious plan of God to redeem a people for himself is in place. It's not the result of any of our good works. God doesn't look down through the quarter of time and see that that we're going to be good and make it. No, it's all grace. It's all based on his lavish love for us that he shows us in Christ. So, from the curse upon Satan, then, The judgments now come upon the man and the woman. The first is applied to the woman in verse 16. We read, to the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. The two areas of judgment that we see here, mothering and marriage. You don't have to be much of a student of history to know that throughout the majority of history, This judgment is evident. Childbirth has often been painful. It's often uh, created life expectancy issues. Even today, though, with all of the modern medicine that we have with epidurals, ask a mom, is childbirth still (laughs) painful? Yeah. But it's not just the childbirth. It's the bringing forth children. It's the mothering. Does anyone feel the pain for a child like mama does? There is pain in bringing forth children. So both bearing children, raising children, women have been the subject of that pain throughout history. Women have also been the subject of man's rule and dominance in most societies throughout most of history. That dysfunction, that wrong, was all set in place right here in the garden. And so you might wonder, as would I, why? why would a gracious God work this way? How, why would he respond to Eve's sin in this way? And we can ask the same question when we get to Adam. Kent Hughes, who's one of my favorite uh, commentators, writes this way, These punishments are God's graces. Marriage alone will give no woman all she wants. Mothering is fraught with pain from birth onward. To be a mother is to experience a new and ongoing index of pain. Joy and woe are woven fine, says William Blake, at the very center of domestic life. Nothing completely satisfies. This is a grace because it will drive the willing soul to seek God. Augustine praised God in retrospect for this uncomfortable grace, saying, Your goad was thrusting at my heart, giving me no peace until the eye of my soul could discern you without mistake. The things that we think that we want the most, both men and women, we can look at this from both angles, that never fulfill. They never fulfill because we are not designed to be fulfilled by these things. Rather, they are to drive us to the one who will fulfill us, the only one who can fulfill us. And as I said, the same is true when we look at that which is pronounced against Adam. This judgment in verse 17, And to Adam he said, Behold, you have listened to the voice of your wife, and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you. You shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread, till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Several things that stand out in the judgment pronounced against Adam. First, the ground is cursed, not Adam. It's the ground. But because of this curse, pain and toil are his in all of his work. He would sweat. He would be frustrated by the thorns and the thistles that would work against him. And while this is true literally in an agrarian sense, which most of the world has known throughout most of history, even today, for those of us who don't even garden, we still know the strains and frustrations of living and working in a broken world and the frustrations of things that work against us. Eating is clearly a theme of this pronounced judgment. He uses the word for eat five times in these three verses. Did you notice that standing out? This is tied, of course, to the whole sin. Their sin was eating of the tree, the knowledge of, the fruit, uh, the knowledge of good and evil, wasn't it? So there, there's this theme of, of, of the, the, even our sustenance, our survival, will feel the pain of this judgment. Childbearing applies uniquely to women. But the rest of the judgments, though, really can look, affect both of us. Women equally know the frustration of work as men. Men equally know the frustration of rearing children as women. Although, all of these could be arguable because we all know exceptions to this. But I'm speaking in general senses. Marriage, divisiveness, men and women know this. And all men and women equally will return to the ground in death. The judgment is against The entire created order. Because of what Adam and Eve did, the whole world is shattered. Relationships vertically with God and horizontally with each other, and even our very work. Our bodies will not even work the way that they're supposed to. And aren't we reminded of this with each birthday that we celebrate? The problem is we don't need self help and we don't need to try harder. We need a Savior. That's the whole point of this. And that is true for every person in every stage of history, in every culture throughout the world. Our problem is found right here in the fall. And we don't need therapy, although therapy can be helpful. We don't need motivation, although sometimes we do need to be motivated. All of those things will be left wanting. We need a new heart. We need a Savior. We need the one who came who would crush the head of the serpent. And that's where our hope is found in the grace of the garden. The grace announced of the one who would come as promised and defeat both the judgments and the curses, bringing life and freedom to all who trust in him. So because of the one born of a woman in the pains of childbirth, we can rest in the word of Revelation 21.4. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death will be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. Do you get that, that, that verse at the, almost the end of the Bible? How, how easily that overlays the problems that we see right here in Genesis 3.15. Everything that was broken is fixed in what Christ has done. Because of the one who would be to us a groom, laying his life down for the church, his bride, overcoming all human relational hostility. We can be encouraged by Ephesians 2:14 for he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. And because Jesus died for your sins and my sin, we can look forward to the day when we will eat without sweat or toil. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. You see, even in God's judging, even in God's cursing the ground and Satan, there is hope for those of us who are His. We have hope. He is working. He is near. He is good. He does all things well. So even when life doesn't make sense and things don't add up, when you have more questions... Then you have answers. Don't think that you can fix it yourself, standing in your own strength. Don't run after the world's advice and their false promise of hope. It's fool's gold. And don't wallow in despair, thinking that there is no hope for you. There is a Savior who has come, who has died, and who lives so that our lives are redeemed for all who hope and trust in Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, may we today hope in Jesus alone. As we realize the weight of sin and the result of the fall, Lord, we, we feel it every day. We feel it in our bones when we get out of bed. We see it in our relationships, in our homes, in our workplaces, in our neighborhoods, in our schools. We know the frustration and the sweat of the brow of trying to work and eke out a living. And how everything seems to work against us. Lord, may we not hope in any of these temporal pleasures. May we not look for satisfaction in any of these temporal things. But may we look only to Jesus. Who died on the cross. To heal our hearts. Our sin broken hearts. To forgive us of our sins. And to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. May our hope be in Christ alone. And may, as we strive to live lives pleasing unto you, may we rest in the power that is within us, that spirit that you've given to us, your Holy Spirit, indwelling and empowering us to live lives that are pleasing to you. Would you do that work in us, we pray in Jesus' name.